Welcome to the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast. I'm Dr. Jay Calvert. I am here today with my very amazing and esteemed co-host, Dr. Millicent Ravello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm pretty excited about this new podcast format. Yes, we are branching out. We no longer have faces for podcasts. We are now <laughs> putting ourselves out there visually. <laughs> But we didn't call hair and makeup for this. <laughs> we're just going to be, we're winging it on that. Day. We're winging it. Fresh off a day of seeing patients and operating. This yeah, you is... can see like the very yeah. fancy outfits we've put together and we're ready for the, uh, for the whole TV, YouTube yes. streaming yes. thing. This is why we did podcasts previously, but we are branching out to a video format. I think it's good because plastic surgery is a visual specialty. By definition. Yeah. So we need to show photos and videos and all that stuff. So that's what we're going to do. So today I want to jump right into it and I want to talk about breast augmentation in a much more visual sense. Right. Breast augmentation or breast implants, one of the bread and butter procedures that we do. It's one of the most common, if not the most common plastic surgery procedure done in the United States. So it's important that we have a very real, honest, educational discussion about what exactly breast augmentation is about. Right. And it's a pretty straightforward procedure where uh, a woman or man becoming a woman or whoever wants to have Larger breasts. Larger breasts. It is, but it isn't. No. I mean, there there is a certain group of patients where you can put a pair of implants in and that patient looks great. But I would say that's like 15 at most 20% of patients. Totally. It's not just a breast aug. Every patient needs a little bit more finesse. You know, like if you really want these to look good, you do have to put in a little bit of effort. I don't think you can just say it's, oh, it's just a breast aug. Right. So it is an artistic endeavor. Definitely. I know that people think of it as a very simple procedure, but I am in full agreement with you that there is a very significant amount of artistry Mm -hmm. and planning that goes into generating a great result with a breast augmentation. I couldn't agree more. And breasts come in all different sizes and shapes and desired outcomes are all different sizes and shapes. And it's not always as simple as it sounds to just throw an implant in there. No, I do want to note that we both agreed with each other three times over. So (laughs) if we're keeping score, we want to to have that on the scoreboard. Good. So who is a candidate, Dr. Ravello, for breast augmentation. Is it somebody who's just a woman with small breasts or are there women that have some breast tissue? Is it who's really the candidate for breast augmentation? I think as long as you are healthy and able to undergo surgery, you are a candidate for breast implants. You could be, okay, small caveat, you should be of a certain age. The breast implants, the silicone breast implants are actually approved in women over age 22, saline in women over age 18. Those are kind of nitpicky things. Those are not hard and fast rules per se. But ideally, your breasts have stopped growing. You've reached maturation of your breast tissue. And you've decided that you are ready physically and emotionally, mentally to have a breast augmentation. And then the upper age limit I mean, 80 years old. If you're healthy and you want bigger breasts, come on in. (laughs) There's no limit. The only thing that really changes is whether or not you need a lift along with the implant. And that's a whole different topic. But as long as you are healthy and physically able to undergo surgery and you want larger breasts, you're a candidate. 
Yeah, and, and the goal really is to have better looking, larger breasts. Yes. Now, some patients just want to fill out what they used to have, especially right. in the postpartum woman who has lost breast tissue from postpartum in, involution, which means after having a baby and you don't necessarily have to have breastfed, the breast tissue tends to shrink. It does. Ironically, it gets bigger. And then after you've had the baby and you've lost the weight, the breast, you actually lose breast tissue in yes. addition to the skin itself becoming a little bit uh, more inelastic and droopy. You actually lose breast tissue as well. Mm -hmm. So there is a subset of women who may not necessarily want to be bigger and maybe they don't exactly have enough skin or need a lift, but they just want to be a little more filled out back to what they used to be. Then a small breast implant is a great option for those patients as well. What about fat grafting with breast implants? Is that something that you like to do? I do. Um, and that can be a whole separate topic as well. <laughs> That's a whole other that? podcast. But yes, but, yeah. um, I do love fat grafting with breast implants. I think you can use it for a variety of reasons, um, whether to camouflage hard lines, provide more softness, allow for a smaller implant, more natural breast look. Uh, women that have a really wide sternum and their implants are going to sit wide on their chest, I think putting a little fat in the middle is a good way to sort of bring them in closer, get more clear. So there's a huge variety of reasons why you could also do fat grafting with implants. Silicone or saline? Silicone. Like hands down. I don't know if we're voting on this one. <laughs> I vote. I vote silicone. <laughs> well, we got a few behind us here. And I'm just, uh, this is, and just for our listening audience, we have uh, a bunch of silicone gel implants around. And for those of you watching on YouTube, this is sort of a standard silicone gel this high is. profile implant. Which um, one is this? I don't know. That's, this uh, is um, an S. This is so. This is a uh, super high profile implant, actually, by Allergan. This is a 545 cc implant, and I think on our next podcast we're going to go through the different styles of implants and the different sure. choices. But uh, the most basic of choices is saline or silicone. Saline is sort of, if you think about a water balloon, yes. the outer coating is silicone. You're not getting away from silicone in your body, but the inside is saline or salt water, as opposed to a silicone implant, which has a silicone outer shell, but on the inside, it's filled with a silicone gel. Right. And... Today, the silicone gel implants are cohesive gels so yes. that they don't, when they rupture, if they do rupture, which I, I haven't seen a rupture in, I don't even know how many years since these new devices have come out, but the uh, gel inside is cohesive so it won't spill out and go all over right. the place. Like the old, the old silicone, the old silicone gel implants were very liquidy silicone, they right. were not cohesive. Right, and there's different... They were, in fact, they were called low bleed. Do you remember that? <laughs> no. So low bleed meant that there was a bit of silicone outside of the, the gel uh, shell because it would pass through because they were so close in nature. Th this is not going to happen with That's, this. This is a, a right. unit of silicone gel, and then it is coated with the With silicone. Yeah. yeah, it's not going anywhere. And there's different levels of cohesivity, but the idea is that, yeah, it's not a liquid. If it leaks or if it ruptures, it's not going to leak everywhere. It's going to stay more or less intact. What's the over and under on how many times we slap that implant during this podcast? 
just, just want to know because it, it's like you can't help yourself. It's like, they're just, you know, they're like stress reliever they balls. Are. You know, they, they, they totally really are. are. Like if you're in traffic, like that's a great that's thing a good one. Car. Well, I noticed, like I always show my patients the implants when we're having a breast augmentation consult and I let them feel it and let them play with it. And then I always find myself taking it back and for the rest of the consult, I'm just like squishing it. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm like reliever. in front of you just squishing this implant. <laughs> but they are. They're, they're great devices. They're very tough. Yeah. There are videos of them being run over by tractors and dropped off buildings and they're yeah. very tough to they're break. not going anywhere um so yeah i prefer silicone also i think they're better there's a lot of controversy with uh you know breast implant illness and, and yes. whether or not the you know implants make people sick and, and there definitely was an issue with the uh textured implants in right. a certain companies uh in the allergen implants causing a very rare form of breast cancer, but caused it nonetheless. And right. so I've been removing the textured allergen implants and uh, in some cases replacing them. And in other cases, women said, I'm done with them. Let's just put in a, uh, a smooth or, or just do fat grafting and I'm finished with, with implants. And I mean, that very rare cancer, ALCL, has been seen in all manufacturers. It's just allergen had the highest number. So those were the ones that were recalled. Um, but those are the texture devices. I don't use texture devices. I never have. I only use smooth. If you think about the difference, um, a texture device sort of has like a Velcro-y almost type surface. It really sticks to the surrounding tissue as opposed to a smooth implant, which is, as it sounds, smooth. So the reason I like silicone over saline, I think the silicone has a more natural, softer look and feel, both looking at it visually and actually manually feeling it. And because... If these things rupture and saline implants rupture, that breast is gone. It's like popping a water balloon. Yep. That night you have it, that morning you don't, and that's an emergency. Because <laughs> <laughs> you are now lopsided, you no longer have a breast on one side. Yeah. So as opposed to a silicone implant, if it were to rupture somehow, you wouldn't even know. Like you wouldn't know, you wouldn't lose any volume, your breast would still look exactly the same. So that is my preference. You know, I do have patients that still come in and, and for whatever reason want the saline and that's fine. Um, but if given my preference, I choose silicone. How is the procedure done? What is your, you know, favorite approach? Do you like, you know, we have multiple ways that we can put in uh, silicone mm-hmm. implants. We can put them in through periareolar incisions, which is an incision around the uh, pigmented part of the uh, nipple areolar complex. We can use an inframammary approach. There's a transaxillary approach. What's your favorite approach to that? It depends on the patient. Um, if I'm doing a straightforward implant in a patient that doesn't need a lift and doesn't have any weird, you know, not weird, but other breast abnormalities, straightforward breast implants, I choose the IMF approach, which is the crease under the breast. Um, In most patients, it's very well hidden. Um, You'll never see it again. It heals very well. It gives great access. So that's my approach. If I'm going to have to do a lift anyways, or um, if the patient has some kind of tuberous breast deformity, I may lean towards a periareolar approach around the areola. That's not my favorite for baseline uh, breast augmentations, there's a little bit higher risk of capsular contracture, higher risk of breast implant infections. Um, So IMF, that's my kind of go-to incision. Yeah, I like the inframammary fold also. And that it's interesting, back east, when I trained in Pittsburgh, and also at Cornell, when I was in Manhattan, the IMF inframammary fold was the 
way that breast implants were put in. And out in California, it's like totally opposite. It's yeah. like perioreolar all day long here. And I, I guess it's because of bikinis, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. That's a, in my training, I saw mostly IMF. Um, that's what I do. I think it's just a great, not easy, but straightforward approach, and it's well hidden. The only patients where I might start getting a, a little bit lean away from the IMF would be in a very thin, typically Asian patient. You put an implant in those patients, sometimes their skin and their implants don't actually hang over enough to cover mm. the IMF, and they're a little bit visible. Yeah, so, the IMF is not as well developed in some some subsets of you know the big-term Asian patients. I yeah. agree with you. Yeah, so they, yeah. those do well with perioreolars, but um, in general, it just depends on the breast and what else we need to do. Yeah, Asian breast augmentation could be its own podcast it really too could. Eh? because it's a it's really different the anatomy is different the tightness of the inframammary mm-hmm. fold is mm-hmm. different i mean there are all these variations in in different ethnicities and as plastic surgeons it's our job to understand that and mm-hmm. to account for it and do something about it to right. get the best results possible right um what typically happens at an operation so you make an inframammary incision Right. Then you lift up the pectoralis major muscle because I like to go under the muscle. Are you an under yeah, the muscle I'm gal? An under the muscle uh, fan. So you can put the implants under the pectoralis muscle or you can put it over the muscle. Um, probably 90% of the time I'm going to put it under the muscle. True. The only times I put it over the muscle are in my tuberous breast patients mm. um, where I need to do some work with the breast tissue and I really need that implant to push out those constriction bands. That's a whole other topic. Um, but other than those patients... Oh my God, tuberous breasts. Is oh gosh, that is... You can like do a whole fellowship in tuberous <laughs> breast. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> but in, in otherwise not tuberous breast, uh, congenital de- breast deformity patient... Um, um, I will go under the muscle. And so typically you make that incision in the IMF. It's usually, you know, about, we use centimeters, four to six centimeters in length. And then you go right down to the chest wall. You lift the pectoralis muscle up off of the chest wall. I typically take it off completely at its insertion all the way to the sternal border, get as much medial dissection. That means as close to the sternum as possible because that's what's going to give you that cleavage by getting that dissection in. Everyone wants nice some cleavage. Close. Everyone wants cleavage. There are some patients, again, with a wide sternum where it's really difficult. And if you start going past that limit, you're going to start getting some complications you don't want. So your body does <laughs> limit you yes. a little bit in terms of how much cleavage you can can get but in general you lift that muscle up you do your dissection and then this is where it gets really fun right so this is where you can start sort of i call playing with your sizers playing with your implants implants come with sizers in the operating room and a sizer is sort of just a cheap version of an implant it's not designed to be a permanent device but you can put these sizers in during the operation you close the patient up temporarily you sit them up vertically in the OR so your patients are still asleep but you take them from lying down you put them up and then you look at the sizes and you see how does that look does that approximate what the patient wanted does it look good does it need to go smaller or bigger and then you start swapping out your sizers, bigger, smaller, until you find the size that matches what looks great on the patient and what she wanted. 
Yeah, I mean, it's important to have those sizers because, uh, you know, a lot of times you think, oh, you know, this patient will look great with a, you know, 375 cc high profile gel. And you put that in, you're like, mm, oh, I better no. do a 475. Because, <laughs> like, it just gets gobbled up into the chest wall. And especially, yeah. you don't know how much right. there's space in between the ribs that can take up a lot of the volume. Yes. So every patient's different. So totally even though different. you may think this is what it's going to be based on base width and what they want, and how much breast tissue there is sometimes you get a real big surprise and you need those sizers otherwise you're you know if you were to just say okay we're putting in this you know size implant you wouldn't get the best result every time you wouldn't so that's where you try on different sizes literally like trying on you know different shirts or different pant sizes you try on different sizes to find the right one that fits and then you take that old sizer out and that's when you do all of your antibiotic irrigations your beta dine irrigations you wash that wound that pocket really well to get any kind of remnant of bacteria out of there and then you insert your breast implant and the close permanent it, one. the permanent one and then you close up your incision um, and that in a nutshell is is a breast implant uh, surgery and I think going back to the sizers it's a really good point because that's always usually the number one question well what size implant are you going to put in and so how do you decide it's like, me <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, I tell them but I base it usually on what they want to achieve they say oh you know i'd like to be like maybe a c or a d and i was like well it depends where you buy your bras do you have a picture of what you're talking about they show right. me a picture then i say okay yeah that's like a c or d i get it um then i go by the base width of their breast and then i decide if they have enough breast tissue that they either need a you know moderate plus or a high profile gel um i rarely use the super high profiles because uh they they Look like torpedoes. I don't know. They're just not for me. But um, I like the high-profile gels in general. Sometimes use the moderate plus. But the uh, it it comes down to a narrow range of devices. I'm typically within 100 cc's, um, and typically the the larger end of what I you know tell my team to have in the operating room. Even though we have a wall of silicone back there, yeah. we have you know everything. For, uh, you know we. Have, Every single implant you can imagine up to a certain size. Like, I don't have 800s back there yeah. laying around. If somebody wants, you know, the largest implant available, then I have to special order that. But uh, for most patients, we have the implants available. Right. So we just go with the sizers and, you know, we sit them up. And, you know, sometimes you have to sit them up a lot of, a lot of times. Mm-hmm. They actually get some abs from <laughs> doing the, <laughs> during the yeah. case. But, the, but, it's, but it's fine. I mean, you want to get it right. So... You you go with the sizers, you look at how it looks, and once you get what you like, you close them up and... And there it is. Bob's your uncle. And I, I mean, I love the photos because patients will come in and say, I want to be a 32C. And then you say, oh, great. Uh, Show me a photo of of implants you like, of a size you like. And they show you a picture and it's someone who's clearly like a double D. And you're like... Okay, well, that's fine, but that's not a C. So I'm glad you told me that because now I know how to tailor the implant choice for you. And again, bra sizes are so subjective. You know, somebody who's a C cup in Victoria's Secret is probably a B cup at Nordstrom, and it's it's very yeah. subjective. But photos are great. They're super helpful because then it gives me an idea of exactly what it is that you're looking for. Um, sometimes, and it, sometimes you do get some interesting photos. You that do they get, bring. You're like, oh, 
okay, okay, <laughs> all right, I see you. <laughs> where did you uh, Where did you find this photo? Exactly. <laughs> and I do say, if you can, if you can distinguish, bring photos of a woman that has implants in. That's yes. way more helpful to me than bringing in someone that has naturally large breasts because it's not an apples to apples comparison no. at all. And you can't, you really can't go by numbers because like you said some patients you put an implant in and their body sort of just swallows it up so yep. they might have come to you and said well my friend has 350 cc implants and i love the size she is i want 350 cc implants it's like it doesn't work that way because no. every person has different amounts of their own breast tissue they may have very little they may have a lot and 350 cc implants in someone that is already a c or d cup is going to make them substantially bigger than 350 cc's in someone that might have been an a cup to start out with yeah it's if you're you know five foot one and you get 450s well that's very different than the woman who is six foot two and gets 450 cc gel implants you know the five foot one gal will look like she has some you know large breasts whereas the you know six foot two woman will look like you know well it looks nice you know it it just the the number is not the way to think about breast augmentation this is an artistic procedure the device is a tool and it's all about preoperative diagnosis and planning to get the result that you want to get in the end i couldn't agree more it's another agreement we are keeping score (laughs) over here so ding gonna put that one up um so What are the complications? What problems can you have with breast augmentation? There are definitely problems that you can have in the immediate period right after surgery, which fortunately are pretty rare. You know, probably the two things I worry the most about would be bleeding because that's a complication of any surgery. Of course. Bleeding after breast implants is a little bit more of a surgical emergency, not because you're losing blood and, you know, you're going to have an emergency because you're hemorrhaging blood out of your system, but because anytime blood, even a small amount, collects around an implant, it's a medium for infection. So if I can tell that you've bled a decent amount around your implant, I'm probably going to take you back to the operating room, wash out the old blood, put in a new implant, just to make sure we're back to like a safe, clean environment again. And that fortunately is is pretty rare. It is. It's pretty rare. Um, In the immediate time period, I always, always super paranoid about infection. Thankfully, in a cosmetic situation, a controlled environment, infection is also fairly rare for these patients. I see it more in my reconstruction patients. Um, And if you were to have a complication like an infection, typically it would show up anywhere between 10 to 14 days, something like that after surgery. Sometimes you can treat it with antibiotics, but if it's really the implant itself that's infected and making you sick, then you have to remove the implants. Fortunately, that's very rare. rare. (laughs) Knock on wood, I have, I mean, I've never had a breast implant infection in a primary breast augmentation. Breast reconstruction, different animal. Yes, totally different. There's radiation, chemotherapy, all kinds of other things that cause, but those also very rare. But in primary breast augmentation, just Thank knock on wood, haven't had one. Usually been pretty good. Um, I think the biggest issue that patients really do experience is capsular contracture. Capsular contracture. So then you're getting into the longer term uh, complications of implants. Um, and these are in- complications that occur at the earliest three months. But 
up to three years, 10 years afterwards. And the main one is capsular contracture. Capsular contracture is when you form, anytime you put a foreign body into the patient, if any, any kind, anywhere, the body's reaction is to form a capsule around it. It's the body's way of sort of walling that foreign body off from the rest of the body. Usually that capsule is very thin and filmy, but in some patients, for reasons not well known, that capsule becomes thick and it can be visually disturbing and it can be painful. So that's a whole different ball game, but typically when it gets to that stage, you do have to go back and reoperate. And there are, that is measured on the Baker. The Baker. Yeah. The Baker one is a normal capsule. Baker two, having some firmness to it. Baker three. It looks weird. Visually disturbing and Baker four being visually disturbing and, and it hurts and it hurts. And so the Baker, Baker threes and fours, I, think you wind up reoperating yep. in general. Yep. There is a medication that you can use to mm-hmm. treat it, and it works pretty well. Either Accolade or Singular, both right. are effective in treating yeah. capsular Early, contraction. Early, mild capsular contraction. It will, it will hopefully stop it from getting worse or keep it at its mild stage. But once you've gone on to a Baker 3 or 4, nah, not it's a chance. Over. Yeah. Um, and what is this? Go ahead. No, you go. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> I think it's too big a topic to, to delve into on this particular podcast, but at some point we will talk about the long-term complications such as breast implant illness and or ALCL, which are two totally different things, um, but that's a, that's a whole different involved discussion. For sure. And also the treatment of capsular contraction. And the treatment of capsular contraction. Now, again, we've covered these in other podcasts, but in our video format here which i'm very excited about <laughs> we will uh we'll get into it a more yeah. visual approach right um what does it cost to have breast augmentation primary breast augmentation no lift just putting in an implant one um, million dollars <laughs> no <laughs> one million no <laughs> um me my practice i'm Pretty standard, about eighty five hundred here in Beverly Hills. I think is my my go to cost. I know you're more. That's a great deal. <laughs> I would encourage everybody to see Doctor Ravella because <laughs> for me, it's, it's a lot more. It's a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just depends on where you are in the country, who's doing it. The Beverly Hills prices are way higher. They're higher. I think you can get a breast augmentation in parts of this country for $6,000 or $7,000. Parts or, of or LA, less. which is it, kind of scary to me because I know what the costs of operating in this city are and they're not cheap because when you're buying an implant surgery, you're buying an actual implant and that's a fixed cost. Yes, yeah, between know, 1500 and 23000 $23,000, $2,300. $2,300, flat. There's not really a negotiating thing that's, that's right. set that's by what it the, costs implant to get the implant company. That's right. And then you're talking about time in the OR, so that's the OR facility fee plus the anesthesiologist. If there is one. Which I would there are a lot of places strongly that- encourage you <laughs> to recommend- have an anesthesiologist in your room. If not, Come on, have people. second thoughts about who's doing your surgery. But those are fixed costs. And by the time you've added up all of those, that's easily $5,000. Easily, if not more. So if you are in the city of LA or urban center and someone's offering you a breast aug for less than $6,000, I would be very hesitant about what's happening. In our resident and fellows clinic, I think it's $6,500. Right. Because they're not charging a surgeon yeah, they're fee. they're not getting a surgeon fee. It's right. just straight cost for the residents Literally, and the fellows to do it. Literally, that's the cheapest you can get straight cost OR anesthesia implants, $6,500. And that may be actually right on the penny, the right. cost of doing it, right. if I'm correct. Um, yeah, but it depends where you are in the country because like getting 
operating room time in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills and Newport Beach and you know, San right. Francisco is a whole different animal than getting OR time in Wichita, Kansas. It just is a very is. different cost structure. It's yeah. not better or worse. Some of the, uh, I think the surgeons in Wichita, Kansas are board certified and excellent at doing sure. this. And you're going to pay a lot less if you go there. Yeah. Um, if you come here, then you're going to get a different approach and there's a different look. And yeah, I mean, breast augmentation is a little more expensive here. That's the way it is. Welcome to California. Yeah, that's <laughs> part of the deal. <laughs> Yes. It is. It is not crazy cheap to be here. insane to be here. No. What are we doing here? I don't know. <laughs> we just like packed it up and moved to like, oh my Vegas. Gosh. Our cost structure would be so totally different. So much cheaper. And I keep way more of my paycheck. Totally different. That's true. <laughs> yeah, because you got to give, you know, 13% to the state of California. Anyways. 13 plus percent. It's yeah. awful. <laughs> okay. That's enough about that. Enough We're not going to complain. <laughs> We're not. No, no Wait, one feels sorry I for us. <laughs> Nobody feels sorry for the plastic surgeon. We get that. I'm, I'm all about it. Uh, so let's, can you walk me through a case? I think you prepared something for me. I did. I have a case. So I'm going to show you a pre-op of a patient that came to see me. Okay. Doctor. And I'm going to tell you what I see since most people are listening to this podcast as of right now. So this is a young woman, uh, 27 years old. She came to me. She says she's about a 34 a B cup at most breast size and she wanted to be like a full D breast size. She'd had one child. She didn't really breastfeed very much. Otherwise healthy. Yeah. And this is a, this is actually a difficult breast augmentation and I'll Mm. tell you why. So what I see, first of all, there's breast asymmetry. Number one, the uh, right nipple is, appears to be a bit lower than the left, Mm -hmm. although I'm looking at the shoulders and a little, little cant to her, but at the same time, it's still lower. The inframammary folds lower. The left breast is larger than the right in two respects. There's more volume on the left one, uh, less on the less volume on the right, but also the presentation in terms of the directionality of the left chest wall is more flat and fit front facing, whereas the right chest wall, kind of like the keel of a ship goes back mm-hmm. into her. So this is what, and this is, by the way, every patient. Every patient has chest wall asymmetry. And so when you were talking about you have to be 22 years old to get silicone gel implants, one of the exceptions is if you have chest wall asymmetry. Yeah. Well, everybody has chest wall <laughs> asymmetry. <laughs> There's nobody who has a symmetric chest. True. So we've covered that one. But I think this is a hard one, and I would definitely look at uh, the base width, which uh, I don't know what it is in she, her. She but. was like 13 or something. But interesting enough, even though she had breastfed and she had been pregnant, she didn't have a lot of skin laxity, and her nipple to IMF distance was actually fairly short. So the distance from the nipple to the base of to the, the implant, or yeah, to the uh, fold, was like four and a half, and there wasn't a whole lot of stretch to it. And yes. she wanted to be fairly large. So with that said, you know, and, and oh, and then she has one other thing that's really not good for a breast augmentation. Mm. She has the armpit <sighs> I know. things. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Those things are really tough. Those are what I'm hard. talking about is like in her armpits, there's like yeah. a skin fat bag that's hanging over that just really wrecks your breast augmentation unless you blow it out with a decent size implant right so i call them superior axillary rolls 
Thank That's a nice name. It's a nice name. For I them. call them armpit things. Armpit things. <laughs> and uh, they do get better with an implant because you sort of uh, camouflage that discrepancy from the fullness up there to the smaller size of the breast. Right. Um, some patients, if they're really extreme, I will offer liposuction to them at the same time. A lot of times I just say, hey, just so you know, this is still going to be there. We can always come back and do a little small lipo afterwards if you want. And it's up to them whatever they choose to do with it. Well... I would go with some decent size implant, high-profile gel, inframammary approach. I don't think I would try to address the uh, nipple asymmetry because it's going to put a periareolar scar that's pretty significant and probably not necessary. I always tell patients the breasts are sisters, not not twins. twins, so they need to be... Now, if if afterwards that there is enough asymmetry in the nipple areolar complexes, you can always give some local anesthesia sure. and, and hike it up a little Do a small lift, bit. yeah. Yeah, do a small lift. So yeah, that's how I would approach it. And what did you do? So... Um, we did talk about these asymmetries, and I said, just so you know, you're going to notice them afterwards. Um, she was fine with that. I wasn't going to go chasing it and do any kind of lifts or anything like that. Um, the one thing I did do in her is I lowered her fold a little bit, just so that I, it wouldn't... So lowering the fold means putting the incision a little bit lower than the natural fold, just to give me more room to get a bigger implant in there. Um, it, I felt like if I just did it right where her fold was, she'd be really top-heavy, and she wouldn't have as much fullness you know, at, below the nipple areolar complex. Um, so that's what I did. We did a, a subpectoral. Um, I used Sientras in her. Sientra 415 high profile implants. Are they sponsoring this podcast? Because they should with that shout out right I there. know. Although we also shouted out Allergan, so we will take any and all sponsors. <laughs> We're not particularly discriminatory. <laughs> not, not right now, unless somebody wants to be exclusive. Unless you want us to be. <laughs> There is a price, <laughs> and we're willing to accept that. Now the uh, so is this the result? Uh, this here? is your after. Yes. Oh, let's see. Boom! There you go. Much better. And you really you really took care of the asymmetry. So if you look, uh, what I see is that, and I'll put that up for the the viewing audience. Uh, but really, what's happened is you've gotten great symmetry from the, you know, and again, they're not going to be exactly the same. Nope. Sisters not, and they do like look like sisters. No redheaded stepchildren here. Um, not that there's anything against them. The but you've really addressed the the size discrepancy. The the nipple areolar complexes look like they belong together. Right. Even though they're a little different. One's still a little bit lower. Totally okay. Yeah. Not worth a scar. Nope. Not even close. And the axillary things look better. They look better, and I didn't even really yeah. do anything to them. No. And when you try to do things to them, that's you get when it problems. looks weird. Yeah. Yeah, and everybody's like, can't you just suck this out? Can't you? I'm like, no, we just, will leave them alone it, and act it, like yeah. they're not there. Yeah. Because the thing that you actually have to do to get rid of them is cut in the armpit. I know. That's what you have to do. Yeah. There's no way to like suck that out or do some kind yeah. of treatment. They suck. The Especially if it's just skin. You know, you got to find a way to remove the skin. Well, that's awesome. Uh, great job. Great yep. case. She's very happy. Is that, uh, is that before and after available on your website? Soon. <laughs> <It's> not, <laughs> not there yet? Ravelloplasticsurgery.com coming to you soon. <laughs> We're just talking about this. I have like pages and albums of photos. I just, you know, it's hard. Like editing photos and getting them I up know. there is time consuming. It's like a second job. No, we don't have time to do it. We're busy operating. <laughs> like that, that's the hard thing. Uh, well, great job. Thank you, doctor. Uh, for for 8500 bucks, sign me up. I'm in. <laughs> Uh, yes, mine is uh, not double that, but it's close to double that in terms of price. Close yeah, to double. But, you know, it's just, I, I don't know. I guess I've been here too long and 
I love doing breast augmentations, but it's it's more expensive for me to do it. I got a. It's that gray hair fee. I got a, I got a really big team. We need some really nice things. <laughs> <laughs> it's just. <laughs> okay, I take back the gray hair fee. <laughs> yeah, I just quoted. Come on, it's Drake. Know, you know, know. hello. <laughs> Now, the gray hair fee is definitely there, but it's also the experience fee. I think I make some really nice breasts. That, that's the gray hair fee. Bottom line, yeah, you know? you've got the experience. All right. Well, anyway, thanks for uh, having this discussion. Really appreciate it. Thanks to all of our listeners who have uh, now forced us to go to video, which is great. I'm happy to do that. I think uh, we'll get a lot more out of it. Uh, but this is the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast coming to you from the 90210. The Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast is brought to you by Rock Spa. This is MediSpa, located both in Beverly Hills and Newport Beach, providing services such as Botox, fillers, lasers, and all therapy, as well as hydrofacials and all the aesthetic products you could possibly need. It's run by the medical director, me, Dr. Jay Calvert. Rock Spa Beverly Hills is located at 120 South Spalding Drive, in Suite 340, Beverly Hills, 90212. The phone number there is 310-777-0496. And Rock Spa Newport Beach is located at 1617 West Cliff Drive, Newport Beach, California, 92660. The phone number there is 949-640-1111. You can go to their respective websites, rockspanewportbeach.com or rockspabeverlyhills.com. Rockspa was created to help my patients maintain their aesthetic beauty in between whatever operations they have throughout their lives. It's something that allows patients to come in, get their facials, skin treatments, take care of all the Botox fillers and lasers that they need to keep up their beauty. And if they've invested in any of the aesthetic operations I perform, it's the way to maintain those operations. If you mention this podcast you will get the member's pricing for your hydrofacial. The Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast is the way that Dr. Ravello and I talk about the issues that are important to us in plastic surgery, but there's nothing better than getting to take care of our patients and do plastic surgery. Our practices are located in Beverly Hills, and I also have a satellite office in Newport Beach. You can learn about my practice at drcalvert.com And you can reach my office by calling 310-777-8800, and that will get you an appointment either in Beverly Hills or at the Newport Beach office. My practice is located in Beverly Hills. Our office phone number is 310-954-1355. You can also contact us directly through the website, which is rovelloplasticsurgery.com. We look forward to seeing you in the office for some aesthetic tune-ups.